everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I'm Anna Howington. And I am Kim Yellen. And I think it's my turn to start. And I am doing, I want to say, like, a heavy hitter. I'm doing, like, a Peculiar Stories staple. And I'm doing the Loch Ness Monster. <gasps> yeah, so. Oh, I'm so excited. Just a little background information. So the Loch Ness is um, in northern Scotland. Um, and it's re- it's one of these uh, locks, like most of the locks, it's really skinny and long. So it's like 22 miles long and it's only um, a mile and a half wide, but it's really deep. So um, at its max depth, it's uh, 744 feet. Oh so my it's, gosh. it's, yeah, so it's, it's a skinny, long, deep lake, essentially. Okay. So the reason that we started hearing about Loch Ness was because of this story that was done in 1933. So that's kind of when everything started really rolling with Loch Ness. Um, There was a story before that from the 6th century. Um, There was a book called The Life of St. Columba. And in this story... Um, It talked about a sea beast and how this man was trying to swim across the river, but he couldn't make it and ended up dying. And the sea beast approached him and like tried to maul him and dragged him underwater. So that's how he ended up dying. Hmm. It should be said that that story kind of aligns with a lot of kind of Scottish myths of uh, there being sea beasts in the water and was a really common kind of trope. Hmm. But just for it to be in Loch Ness is an interesting point. So fast forward again really quick to 1933. 1933 is also coincidentally when a road was first constructed along Loch Ness. So that might have had something to do with this big spike in sightings too. So um, kind of that famous picture, you've probably seen Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. It was reportedly taken by uh, this man named Robert Kenneth Wilson, who was a gynecologist from London. And it was published in the Daily Mail in April of 1934. And it just started the Loch Ness monster myth that we know today. Okay. Yeah. So before that, there was this man named John Spicer in 1933. He had an experience. Supposedly, he saw it. Well, look, with the last name like Spicer, I mean, (laughs) can we believe him? Yes, that's true. Not, I, I wonder who he might be related to. But he reportedly saw this animal that he said was crossing the road. Wait, so in his version, the Loch Ness jumps out of the lake and crosses the road? Yes, it jumps out and crosses the road. Just, I don't, so, I don't buy it. I thought it yeah. was a sea creature or not a sea creature, but a lake creature. Maybe he saw the only real one and then everybody else just made up the rest of them. But he did say that it like was crossing the road and then went into the water. So maybe it's like amphibious, I think was kind of what he was oh. suggesting, which I think that, I mean, we'll kind of get into what the suggestions are, but I think most people think that it's like something that needs to breathe, like something that, that like it's, it's not a like shark or like something. Like a whale? Like yeah. Like it needs to like, okay. okay. Yeah. And he, he said that it was uh, four feet high and 25 feet long and it had a wavy narrow neck. And hmm. it, he said it had no limbs. So he kind of described it as like a salamander was kind of his interpretation. Hmm. Um, there were a couple other sightings through the years. In 1954 was the first time that there was sonar done in the lake on this boat called the Reveal. Three. Um, and its crew did notice that there was a large object trying to keep pace with the vessel. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So they they were kind of like, oh, there's something. Which, this is a really big lake. I, I feel like 
like I said, it's not very wide, but it's super long, 22 miles long and then super deep. So like things do live in it. But how big was the thing that they caught on the sonar? It didn't say a size, but they definitely like saw something. Okay. And uh, there was another photograph that was taken in 1955. The Loch Ness Muppet is what it was called. They described it as an elephant squid. And it was this man named uh, Anthony Doc Shields. He got a really clear picture of the monster. But they later determined that that was a hoax kind of due to the, mm. they said there were no ripples. And so everybody kind of knew. Continuing on, there was a two, uh, in 2007, there was another video. And then the next sonar imaging was in 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in 2012, this man took his boat out um, and he said kind of the same thing as the sonar imaging from the 1950s, that there was something that was following him. Hmm. He identified it as being um, about five feet long. Um, he kind of thought maybe it was a school of fish, but I mean, I guess there's no way of really proving what it is. Mm-hmm. And then there was a big kind of sonar study that was done in. Uh, that sounded like sonar. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes. I'm just doing my sonar noise. So there, there was a man named uh, Gordon Tucker, and he was from the Department of Electronics and Electrical Engineering at the University of Birmingham. And he got a bunch of people together to kind of do an acoustic net that spanned the whole length of the lock. And so his figuring was that nothing would be able to go through the lock without without being detected. And in all of his time, it says that they, he was there for two weeks, and it was only one school of fish that came through that was kind of, or one, there was one uh, event, I guess, a sonar event that went through that couldn't be identified. And they kind of figured that it was a school of fish. Hmm. But the rest of them were things that they knew were in the water already. The biggest studies were done by this man named Robert Rines. And he did four different studies. So he did one in 1972, another one in 1975, and then one in 2000, and then 2000, or sorry, 2001, and then another one in 2008. He never really got concrete information. He got little splashes of things that he that he didn't really figure would amount to anything. Um, he did identify some moving targets, but they they couldn't ever really identify what it was. Um, but in the 1972 study, so in the very first study, he said that they like found this thing that they said at a depth of 36 feet. And at the same time as the sonar readings, a floodlight camera obtained a pair of underwater photography and it depicted what appeared to be two rhomboid flippers. Huh. These pictures, I did look these pictures up online. I mean, it looks really crazy. Like it looks like there's something in the water that like, I don't know, kind of a dolphin fin-ish, like kind of that diamond shape. It couldn't really be dismissed as anything. Like it couldn't there weren't dolphins, there aren't dolphins in this lake. And so they couldn't really say that it wasn't this thing. And there were two different pictures of it. Huh. But there's a lot of speculation that the pictures were altered. Kim, you know how we feel about speculation. <laughs> I know, right? Very true. So someone, not me, someone <laughs> else made these speculations that the pictures were altered and apparently nobody has ever seen the negatives. Mm. So they're not sure how it's been altered. Uh, Somebody went as far to say that it was altered in the sense that the flipper was added. But even like even Robert Ryan says that the picture was altered. He just makes it sound like it's altered just to like bring up the contrast and just so that you can see it more. Yeah. Um, But everybody's like, well, then show us the original. And he just won't. It's a little fishy. 
Sapporo. Ah, <laughs> see what you did there. Yeah, so um, we're not quite sure. In 1975, a British naturalist named Peter Scott announced that based on the photograph, so based on the fact that it had this, like, it says rhomboid or diamond-shaped fin, he gave the creature a scientific name, which I'm going to try to pronounce. Everyone buckle in. I think it's Nestrus rhomboitrexus. Ooh. Is the scientific name for the Loch Ness Monster. So... It has an official scientific name, and it should be noted that because it has a scientific name, it's now protected in the British Registry of Protected Wildlife. <laughs> that all came from this, like, one picture of this little rhomboid fin. But this, like, wet blanket Scottish politician um, noted that the name, the scientific name that I'm sure everybody has on the tip of their tongue now, <laughs> could be rearranged to say Monster Hoax by Sir Peter S. So... But um, Robert Rines pointed out that it could also be rearranged to say, yes, both picks are monsters, are. So, hmm. I mean, that seems like a bit of a bridge too far. Like, you're going to go through all this effort to give a scientific name to something, and then you're going to make sure that it's like an anagram of telling everybody that it's a monster hoax. Hmm. But there's always skeptics. And so apparently this, his name was Nicholas Fairbin. Um, was a Scottish politician, like I said, total wet blanket. We don't need to listen to him anymore. Yeah. But there were there were some other sonar images that were picked up from these these different sonar studies that he did. Um, and then this was the first time that it kind of started to develop. Like, you know how you like picture it that it kind of looks, it's called a plesiosaur, is like the dinosaur that everybody kind of thinks that it looks like. Yeah. Like that like really long neck. So this was the first time that that they're suggesting that they saw in the water something that could be a plesiosaur. So, you know. Um, so then in 2001, they started doing another another sonar trip. They never really found anything. Um, in 2008, Robert Rines decided that the, the animal was probably dead. So he kind of um, shifted his attention to the bottom of the lake. And he started trying to kind of find a carcass or find find the mm -hmm. body of this animal at the bottom of the lake. Mm -hmm. um, he did note that uh, the sightings of this monster had like dipped significantly. And he didn't like trace that back to the fact that like maybe now everyone has phones. And so <laughs> that's maybe why people didn't see it as much anymore. He figures that the animal died as a result of global warming. So global warming strikes again has killed the Loch Ness Monster, according to this man. Not surprising. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, you know, I learned this really interesting fact just two days ago about how global warming affects the oxygen in water. Oh. So this is another way that global warming is just terrible for the environment. So solids are more soluble in water the higher the temperature, but gases have the opposite effect. So the higher the temperature the less oxygen there is in the water, which means the fish can't breathe. So if huh. water heats up too much, like fish will die hmm. because there's no oxygen. Like the oxygen escapes, there's just not enough for them to breathe. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Add that to the list. So they're killing Loch Ness Monster. Apparently they kill the fish. Maybe that was the problem. There wasn't enough oxygen in this log. Maybe, so but if it was like a whale-type 
species, then yeah, it would have to come up for air. And then I feel like people would see it a lot more. That's that's what he. That's why he figured that it had died. That mm. there just hasn't been as many sightings, and and yeah, that eyewitness accounts had declined, and that it would have to come up to breathe. And so he kind of figured that it was dead. And so he in two thousand and eight he kind of shifted his focus to scanning the bottom of this lake to mm. see if there was anything that that was extraordinary. And he, again, didn't he didn't really find anything. He used the same kind of technique, the sonars and the underwater cameras, um, but nothing really came of it. Mm-hmm. It should be noted, lastly, that there was a DNA survey that was done of the lake in 2018. I didn't know they could do this, but apparently you can, like, sample the water and it can tell you pretty much all of the animals that live in the lake, like all the DNA that, oh, that wow. is. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. There was no DNA of uh, large fish such as sharks or sturgeon or catfish. There was also no otter or seal DNA, which was kind of the thing. Um, a lot of the times they're kind of like, oh, well, it's an otter. Like this has to be an otter. Like mm-hmm. they kept, that was kind mm-hmm. of the thing that got brought up or it has to be a seal. Hmm. So according to this study, there were no otters and there were no seals. There was a whole lot of eel DNA found. Ooh. So according to the guy that was running the study, his name was Neil Gimmel. Um, he couldn't rule out whether it was a whole bunch of huge eels or like a few huge eels or if it was a whole bunch of like little eels. But all they could tell was just there was a bunch of eel DNA. So hmm. he had a quote that says that there, uh, there's no evidence of reptilian sequences were found, he added. So I think that we can be fairly sure that there is probably no giant scaly reptile swimming around in Loch Ness. So, But a giant eel is something that nobody's ever seen before. It could be that. Right. Which I I feel like, I don't know, in doing all this kind of like looking up different articles and looking at a bunch of different pictures, like it kind of feels like something's going on. Like how, I mean, I know that there are like parts of the ocean that like we haven't seen and there's part, you know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a, this is a lake that like they've, it seems a pretty extensively studied lake too. Like it just seems like something weird. There's some weird weirdness going on. So if you want to move forward with the assumption that it's a monster and there's just nothing, no other explanation, you might want to stop listening now. So we're going to go into what the possible, I don't want to say more rational explanations, but maybe the the more known explanations. There's been a a whole bunch of, of suggestions of what it could be. One of the things that gets reported a lot is that there's a lot of weird wakes, kind of waves that come out of nowhere. And everybody's like, oh, it's the monster that's making that. But just how the lake is situated, like with all these mountains, it creates a lot of weird like wind shifts. Uh. There was also a scientist that suggested that that might kind of lead to people seeing things, too, is kind of like the reflection of the mountains into the lake. Mm. So that's kind of one idea. Um, The eels is brought up. Everyone figures it might be this large eel. There are a significant amount of eels that are found. There's a whole lot of eels. And even the original sightings, like the very first sightings, um, describe it as a sea serpent. Oh. So that could kind of be what it is. There's an idea that it's uh, a Greenland shark. (laughs) In 2015, I remember reading about this when it came out. In 2015, um, somebody had this idea that it was a uh, Wells catfish, like one huge catfish that's been living for a hundred years because catfish can live that long. Apparently catfish can live for a hundred years. Yeah. I've heard that catfish can live for a long time. They're like turtles. Like they can live like forever. And, um, apparently this kind of catfish lives for a long time. And there were catfish that were released in 
to the lock in the in the late 1800s. So, I mean, it might be just one huge sad catfish that's swimming around. <laughs> one sad lonely catfish. Yep. Um, and then uh, they talk about otters. Is the other thing that everybody really thinks it might be otters. There's some ideas that it, that it might just be, like I said, kind of people seeing things wrong. It might be trees. There was one of the early studies that were done and found this uh, kind of unexplained area. It was later, they later went back and it was a tree. Hmm. So there's also um, these ideas of uh, seismic gases that are kind of creating these bubbles because it is a fault. Like the, the lake is, is a fault. So there might be gases that are escaping. It's on, it's called the Great Glen Fault. Um, and then the the suggestion of that even went as far back to that very first story that we we're talking about from this, from 600, kind of how it was described. It said that there was a loud roaring and the guy who makes the suggestion kind of thinks that maybe that's the description of an earthquake. Oh. But going back to the original photograph, it has been, for the most part, determined to be a hoax. So there was this man. I know. I'm sorry. So there was this man um, named Marmaduke. Are you ready? Marmaduke Weatherall. Ooh. Um, wait, yes. say uh, that again. Marmaduke Weatherall. What a hell of a name. Yeah. In one of the other articles I was reading, he it says Duke. So maybe he goes by Duke. Wait, I so is he... Duke Marmaduke Weatherall, or is he? I th- I think like Duke is like the nickname of Marmaduke. Like maybe he figures Marmaduke's a bit of a mouthful. Have you ever met anybody named Marmaduke? Is before? that the dog? Isn't there a comic strip <laughs> that his name's Marmaduke? Okay. Yeah, I think there there's something. There's like a cartoon or something. Huh. All right. But I no, I've never like in person. No, I've never <laughs> I've never met anyone named Marmaduke. <laughs> But apparently they exist. So yeah. <laughs> so this man named Marmaduke Weatherall, um, he was originally working for the Daily Mail, and they sent him out to Loch Ness, and he found these footprints, and he was like, "Oh, this was in the 1930s." He found these footprints, and he was like, "Oh my gosh, I found proof of this like prehistoric dinosaur remnant that is still living." And he like took casts of it, and he took it back to scientists, and the scientists determined that it was a hippopotamus. And that some prankster had, like, used, I guess back in the 30s, there were, like, umbrella stands that were made of, like, hippopotamus feet. Oh. And so, like, somebody had gone out and, like, made these feet prints in the sand. Okay. And he was so embarrassed and he was so upset. He apparently went back and decided to trick everybody and took his son and he took some other some other people with him and they apparently took a toy submarine and um, they made a head and a neck out of wood putty and after they tested it a little bit they took those pictures those kind of famous pictures wait are you telling me there was no gynecologist I don't know if the gynecologist was in on it or not like it kind of sounds like they went through a bunch of people like first they when they originally took the pictures they went to what's called the water bailiff which from what I read is like kind of like a game warden, I think. Hmm. So they went to the water bailiff and first and were like, dude, we saw these pictures. And so then that guy went to somebody else. And so it like went through a bunch of people before it finally went to the gynecologist. So I don't really know if the gynecologist was in on it or not, or if like it was just like given to him as like, look at these hmm. cool pictures. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know, but 
the most famous picture of the Loch Ness Monster is apparently just a submarine, and they kind of used, like, forced perspective hmm. to make it seem bigger than it was. Hmm. And, yeah, there's uh, a museum. Uh, the Museum of Nessie is alive and well in Scotland. You can go and visit <laughs> it. Um, there's also... Um, there's a group called the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau um, that was around for about 10 years that would investigate things. Um, it also should be noted that there's a legal statute that removal of any unidentified creature from Loch Ness is illegal. Okay. So even the government is like, don't be doing that crazy stuff. And that's kind of the mystery of Loch Ness. And yeah. Wow. We will never know. We'll probably never know. The history of Loch Ness. Yeah. I mean, maybe we will. Maybe somebody will catch a really crazy video. I just feel like if the studies that have been done already didn't, like, prove it or disprove it or didn't, like, give a final word one way or the other, like, there's nothing that... Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's a super big lake. So, like, there was also this one, like, undiscovered cave that that somebody Hmm. claimed was there and... So, I mean, maybe it's hiding. Who knows? Who knows? But they did say um, there was a bit about if it was actually that plesiosaur. Something that I was listening to said that for the plesiosaur to have survived this long, there has to have been a family of like a hundred and something living in the lake. Like for us to have gotten to the point where there's still like one alive today. Like Mm. there couldn't, it couldn't just be one, obviously. And there wouldn't really be enough food. For it to survive in the lake. I see. So it might not be the plesiosaur, but it might be something else. But you know what? Maybe it's the ghost of the plesiosaur. Ooh, maybe. Like. To seek its revenge. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So that's that's a very abridged version of the Loch Ness Monster. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, it's just kind of like an old, like it's like a go-to, like the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of in theme with what I'm doing today. Okay. So, you know I love Halloween. Yes. Yes. Anyone who knows me knows that I love Halloween, and they know that when I love something, I, like, really, really love it. (laughs) Yep. Um, And it's, like, the best holiday. I mean, you can't argue with that. It's, there's no stress. You don't have to buy anything for anyone. You don't have to cook any big meals. You're not required to go to any, like, mandatory family gatherings. Like, it's just (laughs) fun. Like, the most you have to do is, like, buy some candy and, like, throw on a mask. Yep. You can make your costume at home. You could be a character or a superhero or a concept. Like, there's just no holiday that allows for that much creativity. Mm Mm-hmm. So I love it. I love Halloween. Absolutely. The other holidays, they're all kind of full of themselves, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they're all just, like, pretending it's, like, all snowflakes and bunny rabbits. Like, Halloween is real. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't doesn't mess around. It's a little scary. It's a little wild. I like it. Anyway. Good. So in tribute to my favorite holiday, I am going to tell you the history of Halloween. Ooh. Cool. Yeah. Can't wait. All right, so Halloween's earliest roots can be traced back over 2,000 years ago to the pre-Christian Celtic Festival of Samhain. Mm -hmm. So the Celts who lived in the UK, Ireland, they also lived in Scotland and northern France, believe that on the night of October 31st, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred 
and the dead were able to return to Earth. Ooh. I feel like that's from... Do they say that in Hocus Pocus? I feel like they say something I, very I'm similar. I'm sure they do. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like, I feel like that's a, it's it's part of the Halloween folklore. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, for the Celts, it was also kind of like a New Year's Eve because their New Year's was on November 1st. Oh. So hmm. New Year's Day, by the way, is my second favorite holiday. Yeah. Not to be confused with New Year's Eve, which I can kind of do without, but New Year's Day is great kind of the restart like yeah. starting over yeah I love that I love a fresh start I think I've told you before that my my favorite holiday in life is Purim which yeah. is a Jewish holiday and it's kind of the Jewish Halloween and I feel <laughs> like it's like all the parts of Halloween that I like and with like out all the like scary movies and oh I love scary haunted houses. yeah I know yeah so uh back to the the origins of Halloween. Uh, Samhain was one of the most important holidays to the Celts, along with the Festival of Beltane. And Beltane was a summer festival that was kind of like the Festival of the Living. And it marked the beginning of, you know, spring and summer. It was on May 1st. Mm -hmm. Whereas Samhain was the Festival of the Dead. And it marked the end of summer, the end of harvest, and the start of the, you know, long, cold, dark winter ahead. On the night of Samhain, the Druids, who were the Catholic, or not Catholic, <laughs> the Celtic priests. A bit different. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Although they, they turn into Catholics a little yeah. later, and we'll, we'll talk about that too. Kind of forcefully, if yeah. I remember correctly. <laughs> they weren't given too much of a choice. Yeah. So the Druids would build these huge bonfires on the top of hills. And they would burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the Celtic gods. This was just like a huge party for the Celts every year. Uh, they would feast and dance around the bonfires. All in all, it was just like a really good time. The fires were said to burn up and destroy all of the harmful influences before the winter began. Ooh. And the winter was a really scary time back then because, you know, they didn't have any technology. A lot of people died in the winter. A lot of animals died in the winter. So like whatever kind of good luck they could get before they went into that time of the year, they were all about. Um, so the fires, as well as their ashes and, and the smoke from the fires, they were all deemed to have these really like protective and cleansing powers. Sometimes they would build two bonfires and people would walk in between them with their livestock as a kind of like ritualistic cleansing. Ooh. So obviously there were like a lot of traditions that went along with the celebrations. For instance, after the party, the Celts would take some of the fire from the bonfire, from the sacred bonfire, and take it back to their homes and relight the hearths in their homes with that sacred fire. And that supposedly would help protect them during the winter to come. It sounds very like, um, like kind of the same, like you were talking about, like the same things for New Year's, like very like starting over and cleansing and yeah, new yeah. things starting. Yeah, yeah. totally. They also thought that the presence of these otherworldly spirits uh, made it easier for the Druids to predict the future. So there was Ooh. a lot of fortune telling happening. And like I said, because they were living in a time where they were so dependent on the like volatile natural world around them, these prophecies were a really important source of comfort to them as they you know went into the winter. Yeah divination rituals and games were a big part of the festival and they often involved nuts apples and stones uh, they would use these items to tell the future about things like who you were going to marry or if you were going to die that year 
Oh. That was a big one. Uh, if it, they so, saw it in the nuts. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the nuts told me I will die this year. There was this one that I was reading about where they would, like, each family member from, like, whatever Celtic tribe, they would all bring these stones. Like, each person had a stone, and they would throw the stone into the fire. And then the next day after the fire had died out, they would go into the ashes and find the stones. And if a stone was missing, like, if your stone was missing, that meant that you were you were finito. You were not going <gasps> to see the next oh, stone. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you dig for your stone. Make sure you can find <laughs> it. I'm going to put mine right on the edge. And Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> There was also a lot of like really fun games. One of them was apple bobbing, which obviously is still a part of Halloween today. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhat. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't remember the last time I went apple bobbing. I've, but I've like seen it done. I don't know if I've ever actually done it. There was another one where they would take an apple and they would hang it from a string from the ceiling. And then everyone would take their hands behind their back and try to grab the apple with their teeth. <laughs> I feel like I've seen that too. I feel like that would make a great TikTok. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Other games involved hiding small items in food, kind of like, you know, like the baby in the Mardi Gras cake. Oh, yeah. Yes. What is that called? Saint something? I don't know. That's called something. A saint's cake, an all saint's cake. Yeah. I wonder if this is where that originated from, too, but I don't know for sure. I, I don't, it's hard. It's always hard to tell because like the Christians come in and change everything because yeah, yeah. I feel like I've heard the like just being like close to Louisiana. I've heard this like story before about why. You're searching for the Jesus in the cake, but is I, it a Jesus or is it just? Yeah. Oh, it's supposed to be the baby Jesus. Yes. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> yeah, baby Jesus. <laughs> that reminds me of Talladega Nights. You remember little baby Jesus? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was believed that on Samhain the, I'm gonna hope I say this right. The Aoshi. I think that's how you say it. Aoshi. Sounds good to me. Uh, this is it's this supernatural like race of fairies that they believe. In. Oh, <laughs> I was gonna say this is. Kind of off topic, but Oshi in Japanese means, well, okay. So when I was in Japan, I was asking somebody one time, like, how you say good? Like, if you think something's good, what should you say? Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, say Oshi, say Oshi. So I, like, the whole time I was there, I was there for months, I would say Oshi about everything. Like, somebody would bring in something and be like, oh, Oshi, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the day before I left, I said it to somebody, like, they said something to me, and I was like, oh, Oshi. And then one of the Japanese people was like, oh, no, like, that means, like, yummy. Like, that's, <laughs> that's just for food. Like, you wouldn't use, and I was like, I've probably said it a hundred times, like, oh thinking I was really cool. But <laughs> That's so yes. funny. I used to have this client, and she, whenever I would give her an exercise that she, like, really liked, she was a excellent client so like super strong like and uh, every time there'd be an exercise that she'd love she'd go oh delicious <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that so much so Aww. I'm all about you saying yummy all the time yeah that's I great just, it's just what I was like why didn't anyone they probably were just like oh whatever no <laughs> but, it's wonderful yeah yeah that's gonna be my thing now just for everything I'm gonna be like yummy yummy but yes so that, that was your Japanese word of the day everyone yeah. oshi is yummy that's great yeah um so these these fairies uh I want to do a story on these fairies too one day because there's a lot of really interesting mythology surrounding the fairies but they were said to live in underground mounds and um on the night of Samhain the Celts would set out food and drink outside of their homes in order to appease the, the fairies mm. to like bring them good luck or whatever they would, what would they set out like food and drinks 
Oh. As like like, like Santa Claus? Like is that? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's very similar to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was also said that the souls of the dead would uh, revisit their homes. So families would lay out place settings at the feast that night for their dead relatives. That's very like Dios de los Muertos. Yeah. I feel like everything, it's it's all just... I don't want to say stolen. It's all just like well, adaptations. Well, I think of... that that's like across all cultures. Though, right, the idea right. of offerings at like grave sites or like to ancestors or to the gods. I feel like that's like you find that in all kinds of cultures. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I'm just being too cynical. <laughs> no, it's all the, it's all stolen. It's all stolen. But, yeah. Another Samhain tradition involved going door to door in costume and reciting verses and like songs in exchange for food. And this is also cited as the origin of trick-or-treating. Yeah, cool. And costumes were definitely a big part of these celebrations. They usually were made of the skins and heads of animals, which is... You know, kind of gross, but... That's the costumes were made yes. of that? Yeah. Oh. So they would, like, take, like, the skulls of, like, a horse. Oh, my gosh. Oh. And, like, put it on their head. But I guess, I mean, if that's what you got, like, do it to it with your yeah. horse skulls and whatever. There was one, like, hobby horse that was really popular with the Celts. And so, like, it involved wearing a white sheet and the the head of a horse, like the skull of a horse. You were like a horse ghost? Yeah, essentially. Ooh. There's quite a lot of like Celtic mythology surrounding the festival. Um, this included tales of a fire-breathing monster that burned down a palace after lulling everyone to sleep with his music. Another one was about three female werewolves that killed livestock on Samhain. Yeah. And many, many stories of human sacrifices. Cool. It's yeah. always got to, you got to go back to human sacrifices. Yeah. There's one about a town having to sacrifice two thirds of its children. <sighs> and then oh. another one about families having to sacrifice their firstborn. That's an aggressive human sacrifice. Yeah. They're like, all pretty intense. But like I said, these are just like the mythological stories surrounding the holiday. There's oh, no evidence okay. that this like actually happened. I mean, maybe it did. So these are like the stories that people would tell their kids about this town that. that yeah, had to, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And one of them got was it. like, they sacrificed children at the stone idol of this uh, ancient pagan god called, I want to say this right, Chrome Crouch, I think is how you say it. And that's a pagan god that they believed lived underneath Stonehenge. So, yeah, pretty interesting. Love that. And we don't have time to like dig into each one of these stories, but like many mythological stories, they're very violent. So (laughs) if that interests you, go ahead and read up on that. Um, by the ninth century, the influence of Christianity had spread to the Celtic lands and gradually blended with and supplanted older Celtic traditions like Samhain. In 1000 AD, the church made November 2nd All Souls Day, a day to honor the dead. And it's widely believed that the church did that just to kind of like replace the Celtic festival with a related church sanctioned holiday. So it was like Mm -hmm. easier for everyone to like assimilate into this new religion. I think that was kind of the the modus operandi. Like they Mm -hmm. they did that with everything. They were like, see, it's the same, a little different, but it's the same. Same, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So All Souls Days was celebrated similar to Samhain with big bonfires and parades and dressing up. But the costumes, instead of being like, dead animal heads were uh they would dress up as like saints and devils and angels and that kind of stuff so like you know like biblical characters 
The celebration was referred to as All Hallows as well. And the night before became known as All Hallows Eve. And then eventually, Ooh. yeah, just Halloween. Do, 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 do. <laughs> the beginning of it. By the end of the 12th century, souling, um, which is a custom of baking and sharing soul cakes, became a widespread practice. What's a soul cake? A soul cake. So they're just these little small cakes that usually have like a cross on them. Oh, okay. Okay. And like, like a roll? Yeah, kind of okay. like a little roll. They're like these little small cakes. And so okay. groups of like poor people and children would go door to door begging for these soul cakes mm. on All Hallows' Eve okay. in exchange for praying for the dead relatives of the household. So like they would be like, give me a cake. I'll pray for your dead uncle. I mean, that sounds like a fair. Not a bad trade. I don't feel like praying for my dead uncle. So <laughs> here's some bread and you do it. Yeah outsourcing your grief, I guess. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Mourning. Yeah, kind of, sort of. <laughs> yeah. And of course, this is all very similar to what, you know, is now today trick-or-treating mm -hmm. and really similar to the earlier pagan traditions of Samhain. Yeah. Um, the jack-o'-lantern can also be traced back to Ireland as well. In the 19th century, they would use hollowed-out turnips or, and I want to say this right, mangle wurzels which is like a type of beet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so they would carve them out and they would put like little candles or pieces of coal in them and use them mm -hmm. as lanterns. And they would like draw these grotesque faces or carve out these like grotesque faces on them. And uh, that was used to like ward off the evil spirits on All Hallows' Eve. Mm. And there's a really popular folklore tale uh, associated with the jack-o'-lanterns about a guy named Jack who... <laughs> have been denied entry to both heaven and hell oh and it goes like this so a little ghost story for you in the middle of our <laughs> history of halloween jack was on his way home after a night of partying it up he had been drinking he had been messing around and on his way back home he encounters the devil and he tricks the devil into climbing up a tree and then thinking quick he carves a cross on the tree so that the devil can't get down. Ooh, crafty. Yeah, so he traps the devil up there. And the devil has to strike a bargain with Jack in order to get out of the tree. So he says, all right, Jack, I'll never take your soul. You got to let me down. So Jack's like, cool, yeah, I'm fine with that. You never get to claim my soul. Okay. Then, many, many years later, after a life of sin and drinking and dishonesty... <laughs> Jack dies, goes to heaven. He shows up at the pearly gates. St. Peter's like, no, man, you're not, you're not getting in here. <laughs> and uh, keeping his promise, the devil's like, well, you're not coming into hell either. And instead of letting him into hell, he throws a live coal straight from the fires of hell at Jack. I guess he wasn't over the whole tree thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> man, that kind of backfired. Like. <laughs> I bet he was like all proud of himself. He's like, I figured out this like loophole that I yeah. can like act like an asshole and still get into heaven. And then it didn't work didn't out. Didn't work out. Instead, yeah. he just got a hot coal thrown at him. Ugh, happens every time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so it was a really cold night and Jack takes the coal and places it in a hollowed out turnip so that it doesn't go out. And ever since, Jack has just been roaming the earth looking for a place to rest with his lantern in hand. Oh, poor Jack. And that's the story of the jack-o'-lantern. Very cool. Very cool. 
Um, yeah, so in Ireland and Scotland, the turnip had traditionally been carved during Halloween, but immigrants to North America started to use the native pumpkin, which is mm. much softer, much larger, easier to carve, just a better, you know, lantern mm. if you're going to make something out of a gourd. <laughs> <laughs> if I must make this out of a gourd, I do feel like the pumpkin is probably the best. A turnip? Like, come yeah, on. I know. Like, yeah. uh, have you ever tried to hollow out a turnip? I, No. What an awful day that would be. <laughs> the American tradition of carving pumpkins was first recorded in 1837, and it was originally associated with harvest time in general, not necessarily Halloween. What a, like, super specific date. 1837? Yeah, like, it's not, like, in the 1830s. It's, like, 1837 <laughs> was the first time it happened. Like, I think it was the first time somebody wrote it down. It was the first time it was recorded. Oh. Okay. So it was the first time that somebody was, like... Writing in their journal, you know, like, October 2nd, 1837. <laughs> Got it. Okay. I guess, yeah, if you don't write it down, it didn't happen, right? Eloise carved a pumpkin today. Eloise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It didn't, like, it didn't become specifically associated with Halloween until the 19th century, at least here. Mm-hmm. The celebration of Halloween was extremely limited in New England because, like, at the beginning of the colonial times because the protestants were really against the holiday and also christmas really they didn't like christmas either yeah they didn't like celebrating things like ruining everyone's fun i know they were not fun at all no no they weren't so yeah anyway it wasn't until the mass irish and scottish immigration during the 19th century that halloween really became a major holiday in north america Oh, it's funny when you, like, have a bunch of immigrants that stuff gets better. It's almost like immigration could be a good thing. Yeah. Has always been a good thing. Like, Yeah. yeah, Isn't that weird? Exactly. So strange. Yeah. Anyway, um, (laughs) it was originally confined to the immigrant communities, but it was gradually assimilated into the mainstream society. And by the first decade of the 20th century, it was celebrated coast to coast by people of all social, racial and religious backgrounds. And I got to say, that's another reason why I love Halloween is because it's such a secular holiday. Like, it doesn't get claimed by any one group, really. It's like everybody can join in and have fun. There's no religious undertones to it i mean i guess like it did come from some religious traditions but it's not that today yeah by the way easter is the worst holiday (laughs) let me just throw this out here (laughs) okay like i I mean it really is like an easter bunny no personality just (laughs) like eggs like really eggs like they're not even like it's not even sweet I was just going to say, I I could destroy some deviled eggs. Like, like inhale oh, them. Yeah, yeah. I just think it doesn't have a thing. Like, it, it doesn't, doesn't have a, no, like, except for not. the Easter bunny. But I, oh, my God, don't. I love it. Deviled eggs. I want deviled but eggs they're right not now. deviled eggs. They're just regular eggs. <laughs> we always had deviled eggs. No, like, I know, but the, that's what Jews the, do. Eggs that, <laughs> the eggs that have the painted thing on them. Yeah, I know. But then you devil them. Then you, we always had, like, at our... Wait, like so you're said, saying that you would go and you would find the eggs and instead of just eating them, you would take them inside and then create devil eggs with them? Maybe this was my, like, we didn't really have, I mean, I'm I'm Jewish, so we didn't really have a, like, egg thing, mm-hmm. but there were always eggs around. And so I felt like at all of the Easter parties or Easter get-togethers or whatever, there were always deviled eggs. I'm all for the deviled eggs. Yeah. Okay. And I think yeah. maybe they, those should, like, become a bigger part of Easter. 
let's make deviled eggs a part of every holiday. Like yeah. <laughs> here's your here's your Halloween deviled egg and yeah. Uh, yeah, just leave the bacon out of them because it bums me out every time. But some chives are nice. Chives, oh yeah, some some. Yeah. What is that? What's that red stuff called? Paprika. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, do it yeah. up, man. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so trick or treating doesn't really come around until the 1930s in America. The first use of that term in a national publication occurred in 1939. Uh, back then. Children would go door to door asking for treats like candy or money. Oh, which is like kind of hmm. kind of cool. Like, why yep. not give a kid a dollar instead of Snickers? True. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, in in the tradition, the trick implies that uh, they want candy, and the oh sorry, the trick implies a threat to perform mischief on the homeowner's property if not given a treat. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of damaging property by children and teenagers on Halloween in the first half of the 20th century. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that right now. (laughs) I feel like that's still a thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Like they won't, this isn't quite the same thing, but they won't let you adopt like a black cat right before Halloween. And I read about that. Yeah. I think there's still kind of tomfoolery happening on Mm -hmm. Halloween. But then I also read that that was a part of the like satanic panic like thing oh, and yeah, that like nobody true. was really doing anything bad to black cats they just like thought they were that's so. a good point yeah oh, gosh but back in the early 1900s they were fucking some shit up so <laughs> <laughs> okay in <laughs> omaha nebraska for instance after many of the neighborhoods were regularly terrorized on halloween night by gangs of roaming children <laughs> uh, the police commissioner decided to choose 500 of the quote-unquote worst boys to serve as a special police force on Halloween night. And they were given badges, and they were given instructions to rat out their friends if they saw them doing That's so like Lord of the Flies. That's never going to turn out well. (laughs) Actually, it worked. It worked. Did it? Yeah. Yeah, surprisingly, the mayhem was subdued. Mm. Something about it worked. Uh, that reminds me kind of of the other story that I did of um, the Stanford the prison experiment. Yeah, the Stanford yeah. prison experiment. It is. Yes, it's very similar to that. Mm-hmm. In Toronto in 1945, a group of teenagers started several bonfires on a main thoroughfare. And when the mounted police attempted to break up the group, the kids instead started throwing rocks at them and then built Aww. barricades to keep fire trucks from coming in and putting out the fires. Really? Yes. In Toronto? In Toronto, yeah. Oh. After 13 of them were captured and arrested. I thought you were going to say died. No. <laughs> After 13 of them were mortally wounded. Oh. Uh, it didn't get that bad. Um, no, okay. But they did it. They did find and arrest 13 of them. So they were finally able to like break through the barricades, capture 13 of like the ringleaders or whatever. But they booked them. And after that, a mob of 7,000 teenagers and children showed up to Central Booking and demanded their release. Y'all, Canadians. And it get took, it. Come on. Yeah. And it took tear gas and water cannons to disperse the crowd. Wow. Yeah. That's, that surprises me so much. Like <laughs> Crazy Halloween. <laughs> yeah, man. I would have loved to have seen that. Yes. Some say the widespread practice of giving children candy was ultimately what quelled the mischief. So 
Mm, they just wanted candy. <laughs> you just have to give them candy. That's it. Yeah. That's, I mean, that'll do it for me. Like, if I'm burning your house down, just give me some candy yeah, yeah. and I'll just go, or some deviled eggs. Candy and deviled eggs. <laughs> I'll go away. Yeah. 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 Communities began to encourage trick or treating, and the practice gained even more traction after World War II, um, which, side note, trick or treating was actually halted during World War II because of sugar rationing. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. I feel like there's, oh, I guess I don't know enough about rationing. Like, couldn't you make stuff out of, like, apples and Yeah. Stuff? You know, why didn't I they know. get creative? Do you remember, there was a lady in our neighborhood. Do you remember that used to give us toothpaste? Yes. Yes. To just do that. Such toothpaste. a toothpaste. I was just like, come on, lady. I still Weren't have a dentist. It was ba- a dentist. I think that's, I remember my mom being like, they're a dentist. Dude, like, we Ugh. had the best time trick or treating in we our neighborhood. Did. Yeah. There were like, one, do you remember the, there were like stuffed animals? And oh, like gosh. Full size candy bars. Yeah. Dude, our neighborhood in Denton, Texas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a great Mad Halloween props. place. Yeah. Except for the dentist. Except for the dentist. Yeah. I remember going back to your house after trick or treating one year and we just like dumped all our candy yeah. out on the floor. And um, usually, like, I feel like our parents would, like, make us, like, put most of it away. Mm-hmm. But that year, like, maybe they were just occupied or something. We just gorged on candy for, like, <laughs> a good, like, two hours. Yeah. And we, I don't even know what we, we were just, like, watching, like, trash TV and eating yep. candy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a tradition all... that I still keep on. Yep. On just, a regular basis today. Eat some candy and watch some trash TV. Yeah. What else do you need in life? It was so oh. much fun. Oh. I know. Yep. The point being is that here in America, homeowners eventually kind of figured out that the minor annoyance of handing out candy to children was better than, like, property damage. Yeah. Egging <laughs> so your house. That's, that's, that's one theory is why, why it gained, like, so much traction here in America. And apparently, like, they don't celebrate Halloween in other countries. No. Like we do. No. <laughs> We're really good at like parties and like yeah. having a good time and like not great at government uh, apparently. Well, uh, yeah, but Halloween we got that shit down. We're good at having a good time. I feel like Halloween should be the official American holiday. Yeah, I'm all for it. Start a petition. Little scary, little wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Chuck full of candy. <laughs> yeah. What more do you need? Yeah. Yeah. So a couple fast fun facts about Halloween. Halloween is the second largest commercial holiday in the U.S. It comes only after Christmas. No way. Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. Americans spent approximately $9 billion on Halloween in 2018. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, I would, like, over Thanksgiving? I would have yeah. thought that. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Oh. I guess you don't really get, like, Thanksgiving decorations. You have some, but yeah. not, like. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the the? Um, I feel like everyone's been talking about this. The the huge Home Depot skeleton. I want that so bad. I want it too, and it's all like it. I think it's all like sold out. It's probably but, like a couple hundred dollars too, so it might not be. I worth think it was three hundred dollars originally, and now people are like reselling it on eBay because they're all sold out. So like oh. now everyone's reselling it on eBay for like thousands of dollars. <laughs> That's like, hilarious. Yeah. How do you even ship that? Have you seen that? There's like pictures of people with it like tied to their cars, like. <laughs> Yeah. So out of that $9 billion that was spent on just like Halloween in general, uh, $480 million of that was spent on costumes for pets. Aww. <laughs> and that's actually a $200 million increase from 2010. Oh, my God. I know. Obviously, nobody's going to be spending that much money this year. So uh, no. thoughts and prayers for Spirit <laughs> Halloween stores. Oh, poor Spirit. Um, 
Oh yeah, so a couple a couple more fun things. Illinois produces five times more pumpkins than any other state. It has around 15,000 acres devoted to growing more than 500 million pounds of pumpkins annually. Claps for, what did you say, Illinois? Illinois. Good job, Illinois. Thanks for your contribution. <laughs> Anyone over the age of 16 caught trick-or-treating or even just wearing a mask in Bathurst, Canada, faces a fine of up to $200. Get out of here. What is with the Canadians doing it weird in this episode? The city also has a curfew for everyone else. So even those under 16 aren't allowed out after 8 p.m. So, like... Way to be a buzzkill, Bathurst. What a weird... I wonder if that's like... Maybe it's one of those like old laws on the books that nobody really follows. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, what is it called? Blue laws? Yeah. If yeah. anybody from Bathurst is listening to us, which is pretty unlikely, we have like five fans, let us know <laughs> if that's true or not. Um, Keene, New Hampshire holds the record for the most jack-o'-lanterns on display. In October of 2013, the city broke the record with 30,581 lit pumpkins all around town. Good, holy moly. Good good job. I good know. team effort. Should we do another round of applause for, uh, for Connecticut? For, good job. Uh, Keene, New Hampshire. Keene, New Hampshire. Oh, New Hampshire. Great good job. Um, so, and sadly, this will be the first Halloween in 19 years to have a full moon. <gasps> and it's also on a Saturday. So we can add Halloween to the list of things that COVID ruined, but still try to have a good time because, yeah. you know. It'll be even better next year. Like store all this energy, I mean, all it this won't. excitement. It'll be on a Sunday and there won't be well, a full moon. So No, but I mean like, all this excitement that you have. That's what I keep telling myself for all these things that like get ruined. It's like have save all the excitement and then next year it'll just be like double. It'll mean that like, much more. If there is yeah. a next year. If oh, there is an America next stop, year. Stop. <laughs> We don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll be we'll be fine. We'll have that will be another Saturday full moon. Twenty years from now, <laughs> in a yeah, in a hundred years or something. <laughs> oh yeah, but you know whatever, it's still gonna be cool because mm -hmm. it's 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 Halloween and we'll make it fun that's, somehow. That's called something. The second full moon in October. Ooh, is it? What is it? Oh, let's Google. Oh, it's a blue moon. When there's two moon, two full moons in one month, the oh. second one's called the blue moon. Even yeah. more special. Yep. Oh my gosh. Look, on the calendar I'm looking at, it looks like there was a full moon on the first, and then there's another full moon on yeah. the thirty-first. Hmm. So yeah, a blue moon, October. Oh, so cool. But so yeah. Cool. Oh well. Next year. Next year. Yep. Yeah. Like we've been saying for everything. Nine months now. <laughs> Next year. Six months. <laughs> yeah. Feels Ugh. like nine months. Feels like nine years. Yes. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. Oh, well, well uh, you want to do a rundown? Sure. Sure. Do you want me to go first? Uh huh. So um, I have actually not been running very much. And I feel like it's just like, first it was hot. And then it was that we had a, a couple of hurricanes or tropical storms or whatever roll through. And then like all the, I don't know, I've just been feeling like really down mm -hmm. kind of recently. Yeah. But last week I went on my first run in quite a while and I did, um, cause I, you know, you lose running really quickly. I found like it's, you know, when you don't go all the time, like all of a sudden it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did, um, the couch to 5k. Have you ever done that app? Mm-mm. 
it's it's a, it's an app that like tells you like it'll be like run and stop and walk and whatever and you'll eventually like it's like a program a running program okay that you work yourself up to to running a 5k and so I was like I'm just gonna start at the beginning of this again and like just go from there and it was like really nice to like get out and like just run like for the first time in a long time like it 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 kind of felt like riding a bike like although it was <laughs> I mean it was definitely a lot harder than it used to be um but it was I don't know it was really nice to like feel like I'm like getting back into the things that that I like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I can I don't know I can start to feel like there are times when you feel like you're starting to not enjoy the things that you don't enjoy. And I know that that's like a sign of depression. And yeah, so I've been I was trying say, really hard. No, I'm right there with you. That's like literally my everyday right now. <laughs> right. So I've been trying to not let that like creep in a lot. And so I like went running for the first time in a very long time. Like, so it was good to like get back into it. And Awesome. Yep. So that was nice. Yeah. Well, I have also been uh, battling quarantine depression yeah. <laughs> you want to call yeah. it that um yeah. so I've had a hard time running too and um then I kind of injured myself moving around some heavy like objects mm. not terrible but like my back like was a little yeah because I'm getting old right <laughs> and also because I like picked up something that was like way too big for for someone of my size uh-huh. and so I was like I was talking to another friend of mine too uh you know Erica yes yep um you guys are concert buddies Yes. Yep. My ACL buddy. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking to her the other day and I was like, you know, we were just like lamenting like everything that's going on. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm like having a a bit of a hard time because I'm not working anymore. And uh, she's like, you know, you should really find something to do. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I do my podcast and I'm doing all these things. She's like, no, you should really find something to do that doesn't require you to feel like you're having to accomplish a goal. Oh. And I was like, you know, that's really smart. And she's because she's like this fantastic gardener. So she like has this amazing garden in her backyard. And, um, she, you know, it's just like something that she just goes out and like just kind of like, you know, does a little every day and it's really relaxing. And she's like, you know, you should try that. And I was like, I hadn't been running myself, but I love being outside. And mm-hmm. because of my backyard, I was like, well, I was like, I could either go for a run or I could do something else. And so I've always wanted to pick up bird watching which I know sounds kind of dorky. (laughs) No, no, that sounds really cool. But I ordered a pair of binoculars and I've been going bird watching. And it's like, it's just like a really great activity. I know this isn't a run, but it's like, it's on the same trails that I run. So I kind of associate it with that. Like it's exercise. I'm getting outside. Yeah. Outdoor cardio. I think. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, and now it's not even like the best time to be bird watching, but like there's still, you know, there's birds around still. So, you know, and I've been like trying, like figuring out like what species they are and stuff like that. And if I see one and I don't know, I can like look it up and I'm like, oh, okay, that's this. And there's something about like that activity that requires you to be in the moment so much because you like can't check out but you got to be listening and watching at the same time right because you can either hear a bird or you can see it it sounds kind of like self-explanatory but like when you're walking and your whole goal is to like find a bird that you can like look at through your binoculars I guess yeah it's like you're really in your environment in a way that is not very natural to me that I I'm I'm a very like heady person like I'm always Mm kind of like thinking about the future or thinking about the past or like you know, or like thinking about a problem that I need to solve. Like I'm very rarely like in the moment and it's something that I want to get better at. And so this was like one of the most in the moment activities that I've ever done. So I'm all about Mm -hmm. it. I've been loving it. 
you know, as soon as my back starts to feel a bit better, I'm going to get back to running too. But just in the meantime, while I'm still like um, taking it a little easy, bird watching has been amazing. So go try it. Cool. It sounds dorky. It sounds like something like an old man would do, but it's really <laughs> like a lot of fun. And then you see other creatures too. Like you see like chipmunks and like squirrels and stuff and like, you know, and you like might see like like a random lizard or something like you just you you really don't realize how many things are like alive around you and when you start to look at them in their environment in a really like up close way it's just it's fascinating so I feel like that's the thing is like you like realize that like you're a part of this like big thing Mm -hmm. like it's it's not just you out there like like you said that there's so much like alive and yeah and they're all like doing their own little things and like searching for like you know food and it's just it's really Mm-hmm. just like to watch these like sentient beings that are not yeah. humans. I don't know. It was really cool. So that's super cool. 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 Yeah. I like it. Thanks. Cool. Yeah. So check out, check us out on all the things. Uh, Inst- I think Instagram and Facebook are both peculiar stories and fire out tales. Yep. Patreon is patreon.com slash PSA F O T. Our email is info at peculiarstoriesandfaroutales.com. And our website is also peculiarstoriesandfaroutales.com. So please check us out there. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you guys could just take a couple of seconds to give us a review. Give us five stars. Let us know that you're listening. Uh, And if you have any ideas of things you'd like us to cover, please send them our way. We like that because then we mm-hmm. don't have to do the work ourselves yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean we have to yeah. research it but like yeah you know you know yeah. come up with it it's nice to know that you're not just like yelling into a void yeah yeah and remember it is far better to be peculiar than to be boring Woohoo! have a great day guys or night or morning or whatever you're doing yep or full moon or full moon yeah have yeah. a great halloween yeah spooky halloween <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>